Father, we thank you that there's power in your name this morning. We thank you that there's power in the name of Jesus. And Father, um, represented out in the world and even in this place this morning and in our hearts, there's darkness. And darkness is where your presence um, isn't. And Lord, it's only there because of our rebellion, because of our sin, because we don't want to let you in. But Father, I pray that today that your light would shine brightly into the darkness. Just as we've been reading about in Genesis, Lord, I pray that you would speak and say, let there be light. Into every heart, into every situation, into every relationship, every circumstance where there is darkness. We declare that you are the light of the world, Jesus. And we love you. We're here for you today. And I just pray, Father, that in the time that we have together today, that you would have your way. Because there is nothing that is too difficult for you. Nothing. And Father, I, I, I pray that um, whatever that nothing is for people this morning, Lord, in, in their situation, the thing that seems too great, the thing that seems too difficult, the thing that seems too dark, Father, in the name of Jesus, would you just bring that down this morning? Would you set us free, Lord? Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your love. Thank you that light and life are your idea. We love you, Lord. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you. Grab your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Hopefully you guys have been uh, reading Genesis chapter 3 this past week. There is a lot in Genesis chapter 3. You know, I thought that... uh, uh, I was not going to drive myself as nuts this year as opposed to last year because last year we were, we were reading one chapter a day, five days a week, and there was so much I wanted to cover and I just, I had to pick and choose, so I narrowed it down just to one chapter that we were going to read in our churchwide Bible reading plan, but it's still driving me nuts because I just cannot get to everything here on a Sunday morning that's covered in one chapter. Um, but go to Genesis chapter 3 and I'm going to jump right in and begin to read all 24 verses. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the, of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust. And to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Pray with me one more time. Father, thanks for this morning. Pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God is good. I want to encourage you this morning. I hope that you leave here extremely built up and filled with hope. Because what we're going to talk about this morning is death. Makes sense, right? Going to talk about death. Um, it's my primary argument or contention this morning that it's not so much that most of us have an incorrect view of death as so much as we have an incomplete view of death. So we are somewhat familiar with death, obviously. We understand um, that our time on this earth in these physical bodies is coming to an end, but I would argue that that's probably about the extent of it for most of us when, when we think about death. And this is somewhat problematic because an incomplete um, or simplistic diagnosis is always going to lead to a deficient treatment or solution. Again, an incomplete diagnosis is always going to lead to a deficient treatment. Um, so you guys, I've told the story before, but when I fell off a roof several years ago and broke my neck, I went out to the local hospital. They did a CAT scan, and their words to me were, uh, something's not right back there. You might have to have surgery, but we're not really sure. So we're going to send you to a neurosurgeon, and we're going to let him decide. And so I just began to text everybody, please pray I don't have to have surgery. Please pray I don't have to have surgery. Please pray I don't have to have surgery. And I finally get up you know, to Altman, and they'd done some more scans, and the first thing the doctor says when he comes in is, what have they told you? And I said, well, they said I might have to have surgery. And he just begins to shake his head. And he says, most people with this break are quadriplegic. And um, he had a full, correct diagnosis, and therefore he was under no illusions as to what the treatment needed to be. 
that I was going to have to have a you know, pretty major surgery and fuse some things together, and now I get to walk around with a bunch of titanium inside of me. Um, but in the same way, I would argue that for most of us this morning, when it comes to death and talking about death, we're kind of like that initial diagnosis when I, when I broke my neck. We're like, yeah, yeah, I mean, something's kind of wrong. We're not really sure, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and the reason I, I do believe that you can leave here encouraged this morning, even though I want to talk very specifically about death, is that if we get a full, correct diagnosis of what death truly is, and what it's all about, and to the varying degrees of it, um, we are then able to apply a better solution and to truly find uh, healing and wholeness. And so, just for the sake of kind of a a little bit of an outline, again, I'm going to kind of be bouncing around here in Genesis chapter 3. There's a lot in here, but um, just to kind of help us move along, um, kind of the three big ideas here that I want to talk about regarding death are, I want to just very briefly give you a definition of death, and then talk about the dimensions of death, and then talk about the solution for death. The definition, the dimensions, and the solution. Definition, the dimensions, and the solution. First of all, the definition of death, okay? Again, I think most of us probably have somewhat of a simplistic definition of death in that usually when we think about death, we think about, about just ceasing to be. Now, whenever we die, it's just like we, we, we cease to be, or when something's dead, it, it ceases to be. Um, the biblical definition of death uh, is not so much ceasing to be, but it would be being separated from what should be. Okay? So the definition of death, not just ceasing to be, but being separated from what should be or from what God intends. Again, that, that, or just very simply, separation. Separation. Let me give you a very quick biblical overview, and then you'll see this definition unfold as we get into Genesis chapter 3, but let me just fire off some verses at you here very quickly. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have, separ- your iniquities have made separation between you and between your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 53, verse 6, pretty famous verse, says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've been separated from God. We have turned each one to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In Psalm 51, when David is finally repenting after he's been confronted by the prophet Nathan in regards to the adultery and, uh, with Bathsheba that he'd committed and the murder of her husband um, that he'd committed. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then he says, cast me not away from your presence. Why does he pray that? He says, cast me not away from your presence because this is where he'd been living. This is what he'd been feeling, that he'd been feeling away. He'd been feeling separated from the presence of God. And he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he, Paul's saying, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaking of the, one of the, of the final judgment on the last day. Matthew 25, verse 41, says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his, and his angels. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from, away from 
the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When the Bible is talking about death, it's talking about separation. Separation on several different levels. And so we've got to get that uh, in us first as we begin uh, to move along through this and understand what death fully is. It is separation. So next I want to talk very, uh, well, this is actually where we'll spend the most of our time, but about the different dimensions of death. So the definition of death, separation, and I'll give you four dimensions of death, okay? Number one, we'll start with kind of the most low-hanging fruit, uh, the one that we're probably most familiar with, but that is physical death, is that there's going to come a time when your physical body, okay, that you live in right now, is going to stop working, okay? But at that time, you will not cease to be but you will be separated from what currently is. And your soul, your spirit, your inner man is going to be separated from your outer man or woman. Okay? Um, You see this happens to Adam eventually in Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. It says, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's a long time. And then he died. (laughs) That's what it says. And that day is also, is also coming um, for each of us. There will be a day when our inner being is separated from our outer being. And this wasn't, this death wasn't part of God's original plan. He knew that it was going to come. He allowed it. He's always had a plan for it. Yet, um, we see in everything that we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 has been all about life and abundance and fruitfulness. Uh, several years ago, I was at a funeral, and the lady that had passed away was older, and she was a, kind of a well-known lady, liked by many people. She was a believer. And so everybody kept coming along and saying, well, you know what? At least she lived a long, full, good life. You know, and it's not, it's not, a, not a bad thing to say. Very well-meaning. Um, I've said that, said that before. And so, and especially because she knew the Lord, it was something to celebrate. But you know, I'll never forget her daughter was there. And her daughter came up to me and she said, you know, I, I know they're right it's true, mom did live a good, full life, and you know, I'm thankful that she knows the Lord. But then she just looked at me and she goes, but you know what? This still stinks. It does. Because we're separated from what God originally intended to be. But the first dimension of death is physical death. The second dimension of death is spiritual death. Now, look at the text here in Genesis chapter 3. We'll come back to the serpent and talk a little bit about him. But one of the first things you see here in verse 8 after Adam and Eve's sin is, is that they begin to hide from the presence of the Lord. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. We talked last week about how what made Adam a, a living being was that God breathed into him the breath of life. It's a picture of intimacy, of him coming close and literally breathing life, his spirit, into Adam. 
And how we, and we talked last week about like how we are made to, to live in his presence, to have that intimate acquaintance with him every day. But here you see the first effect of sin is that it brings death, and death is separation. And Adam and Eve are now hiding. They're separated from the presence of God. He says in, in verse 10 that it was because he was afraid. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. And that fear caused him to be separated from God. Each and every single one of us, because we're born with both a sinful nature, we are, we are sinners by both nature and choice. Okay? We have all co-participated in it, and we are rightfully guilty, uh, apart from the grace of God and the redemption that's found through his son, Jesus Christ, is that we all grow up um, hiding. But we're not very good at it. We're like little kids. I, <laughs> you ever play hide-and-seek with your kids? You have to kind of play along, don't you? Because they're going, and they're hiding, and they're standing under a blanket, like in the middle of the room, like maybe kind of giggling. And you come in, and you're like, where are you? Hmm, where could he be? But they really think that they're hiding. Guys, our attempts are just as futile. But we do it all the time. Because of our sin, we're afraid to truly come and draw near to God. It's understandable on some level because God is holy and we're not. Yet the good news, is, as we're going to see here, um, is that God still wants to come. He still wants to fellowship with you. But you've got to stop hiding. And again, um, you're not very good at it anyway. <laughs> so, so give it up. So you've got physical death. You've got spiritual death. Third, you have relational death. Relational death is that the spiritual death is more, to use just different language saying the same thing, is that that's more on the vertical plane with us and God, but you also have this relational death on the horizontal plane between Adam and Eve. If you remember, Genesis chapter 2 ends with, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There was no shame, there was no sin, there was no perversion of any type. But now, because they had disobeyed God, the vertical access, it has ramifications on the horizontal access. And so now you see a separation even between them. In fact, the first thing they do, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made for themselves loincloths, coverings. They're no longer comfortable, not only with the presence of God, they're hiding from Him, but they're also not comfortable being transparent with, with each other. And this is what sin does. It comes, um, and it has effects in our lives. On occasion, uh, when I meet with couples that are maybe struggling in their marriage, Every now and then, I will say, do you think you have a dysfunctional marriage? And usually, 
um, they'll say, yeah. And by the way, I think every marriage is a little dysfunctional. And I'll say, well, I agree with you. Your marriage is a little bit dysfunctional. But I'll say, dis- and then I I'll always follow up with this, though, is that dysfunctional marriages come from dysfunctional disciples. And so the thing I'm always trying to get them to buy into is that if they want to fix their marriage, they first have to fix their relationship with God. Because if they'll live as functional disciples in following him, then everything on the horizontal axis, including their relationship with each other in their marriage, will get, will get fixed. Um, and, and notice what happens here. Notice what happens here is that God had placed them in the garden. Again, we, the last two weeks we've talked about all the goodness, all the grace, all the abundance, all the provision, and, and puts them in charge of it. Okay? And now, though, as soon as they sin, where do their eyes go? What's the first thing that they knew? They knew that they were naked. Where do their eyes go from being focused on the goodness of God to themselves. To themselves. Folks, we were not called to live with our eyes on us. We were not called to make much of us. We were called to make much of God and of his goodness and of his grace and of the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, And so if we want to get that horizontal plane fixed, we first got to turn back um, and fix the vertical plane and know that we have to restore our relationship, uh, our relationship with God. Um, they begin to blame each other. You'll see when, when Adam confronts, or I'm sorry, when God confronts Adam, what's the first thing he does? Verse 12. The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now don't miss this, because this is extremely slick of Adam. Man, we are very good at dodging the blame. Amen? Wives, don't elbow him too much right now when I said that. Because he, he kind of kills two birds with one stone. Notice he's blaming Eve, but at the same time, who's he also blaming? God. Well, this woman, who you gave me, she's the issue. So they begin, to, they begin to blame each other. And again, this doesn't just happen in marriages, but all over the place. In fact, I was thinking last night, this might be kind of a weird way to say this, but if you were, if you were an alien, for some of you this might not be that hard, maybe you think this way all the time, but if you were an alien coming to this, all my sci-fi, all my sci-fi uh, lovers out there, but if you were an alien coming to this earth, you didn't know anything about it, and you would just kind of like look at us right now, and you can make some observations kind of fresh, with fresh eyes, one of the things you might say is, those earthlings, they sure do blame each other a lot. Amen? So much blame. So much blame. See, we're looking for somebody to blame because we're looking for somebody to pay. 
for the wrong, for the evil, for the fear. For the sense that we have inside of us that we, that we need to hide. That we're not safe. And we're angry and we're frustrated about it. But we don't want to be honest and we don't want to be transparent about it. And we don't know how to make provision, provision for it. So you've got physical death, you've got spiritual death, you've got relational death, and then you've got eternal death. The last or the, the fourth dimension here of death that I really want us to get is you've got eternal death. Now I think you see a little bit of a reference to, which I'm going to come back here, it's actually in the text in Genesis chapter 3, but let me jump to a couple different places, well primarily in the book of, in, in the book of Revelation. Listen carefully, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, for his presence, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The next chapter, Revelation chapter 21, says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation chapter 14 says, and then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehand or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and of the image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Is that the fourth type of death is really just adding the word eternal to all those other different dimensions that I already mentioned. That in the end, apart from the provision of God, which we're going to get to here in just a little bit, if you die physically, your inner man will be separated from your outer man eternally. You will receive a new body. It will be a resurrection body that will never be destroyed in the lake of fire forever. Then you will never cease to be, but you will be separated from what should be from what God wants forever. You will be separated spiritually forever. You will be separated from the goodness of God that we've read about in Genesis 1 and 2. There is a sense in which, yes, hell is being separated from God and from his presence, but more accurately speaking, it's that you're separated from the good attributes of his presence and of his character. What you will experience forever is the fullness of his wrath for all of eternity. 
in the lake of fire, separated from the goodness of his presence. You will experience relational death forever, for all of eternity. Separated from those that you love and those that you care for, separated forever. You know, as I was going over this again last night and just thinking about the reality of who we are as Christ's church and the reality of the message of the good news that we as his people are given to proclaim, I felt like I just needed to say this morning, and I don't, I mean, I'm talking about it now, and, and for those of you that call Mercy Home, like I, I've come here in the past, but I feel like I just need to say this morning, if you're here this morning, maybe you're not real familiar with the church or Christianity or what it's all about, I just want to say to you, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what so many preachers and churches and ministries and Christians have made it. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you trust Him as your Savior today, and you can know for certain where you're going to spend eternity because of what Christ did for you, listen to me, I promise you, I promise you, it will change your Monday. It'll change your Tuesday. It'll change your, your, your February, your March, your April, your May, and on and on. But the message that God has given us to proclaim the good news of what Christ came to save us from is ultimately about an eternal death that each and every single one of us as human beings, as sinful human beings, is headed for. And again, if you're not really sure what church or, or, or Christianity or the gospel or, or Jesus, what, what it's all about, I'm just sorry for what you may have heard. Because we have so made it that this, this message of, of life improvement and of self-help and just give me some practical applications so that I can be a better husband, I can be a better wife, I can be a better parent, and everything will just go smoothly for me in my life. That's not what Jesus came to save us from. He came to save us from an eternity of experiencing God's wrath. Your primary problem this morning isn't just that you're relationships are a little bit jacked up. Your primary problem this morning, if you don't know Jesus, is that the wrath of God is against you. For every single one of us. And the, the only provision, the only thing that can save us, yes, yes from our fear, and yes from the broken relationships, and, and yes from the relationship with God, and we get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all those types of things, yes, we'll get that in, in our life. But the primary thing that he's come to save us from is his own, is his own wrath, which we rightfully deserve, because God is just. And he will not change, and he will not let sin go unpunished. But, there's yet another part to my sermon, which is the solution for death. The solution for death. Um, very simply put, here's the solution. God. God is the solution. He's the creator He's the good giver. 
He's also the loving Heavenly Father, but He's also the righteous judge. And He is just. And so you have here in Genesis chapter 3 just a big old mess. And Adam and Eve are hiding. They're covering themselves. And they're afraid. They're living in fear. And here's, here's the first thing that God does in beginning to provide a solution in answer for all four of these degrees of death that they have now brought about into his good, wonderful creation. Is the first thing that God begins to do, if you'll notice, very simple, but don't miss this, he begins to ask them questions. Now how many of you know that the omnipotent, um, omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing God doesn't ask questions because he needs answers? Amen? knows it all. But he asks these questions to promote self-examination. And we don't like this. This is to, to just put, when God asks us questions, let me just say the same thing another way. This is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the primary reasons why Jesus said in John chapter 15, he, he spoke about after his death and his resurrection that the Holy Spirit was going to come and the Holy Spirit's main job was going to be to convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. Is that if you feel conviction in your heart about things that are wrong, that's because you're hiding and God is beginning to call you out, that is a merciful, 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 loving act of God that he's doing in your life. And so look at these questions. Um, first of all, in verse 9, where are you? Again, it's not like God doesn't know. Adam's hiding, but he's just, you know, he's the little kid standing in the middle of the living room with the blanket over his head. Hope he doesn't see me. Too late. He asks these questions so that Adam will begin to examine himself and God would ask you that this morning. Where are you? So you think, what? why are you hiding? And, I, and I'm asking you this morning, why, why are you hiding? Why might you be hiding this morning? Because of fear, what are you afraid of? Why are you scared? You need to answer that this morning for you. God knows. He knows. He knows you're hiding and he knows why you're hiding. He knows what you're afraid of. Do you know? And it's mercy and grace and love that he does this. The second question, he says, have you, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? See, God wants them to acknowledge two things. He wants, them, he wants them first to acknowledge that they are separate from him, and they're separated from him not because of him, but because of them. They're the ones that are hiding. God kept the appointment. God still showed up. But he wants them to acknowledge that they have separated themselves from his presence, and then he wants them to acknowledge that they've disobeyed. Folks, listen, I don't care what the issue is, in your life, I don't care how bad the addiction or how strong the stronghold. If you want to be free, you have to acknowledge that you're the one hiding and that you disobeyed. 
There's no way around it. You gotta acknowledge these two things. And again, this is mercy and grace when we experience this. It's not fun in the moment. I remember, I've, I've told you guys this before, but again, I, each one of us, our story is our story, and you know, we, it's all for God's glory. But when I was, my senior year of high school, um, it's not really following the Lord, but God was just hot on my trail. It's the best way I can put it. And he was graciously pulling me out of hiding. And I, I've told you before that the, the, that feeling, you know, when you go on a roller coaster and you're right at the top and then you just begin to go down over that first steep hill and you know that sense that you get in your stomach of like free falling? Maybe I'm the only one that gets that, but does anybody know what I'm talking about? That, that sense of, Ooh, for a second, you're like, oh, I'm gonna die. That, that's just how I lived. I just had that feeling in my stomach all the time. And I say that just to kind of be real tangible with like, sometimes this is what conviction feels like. You feel like you're free falling and it's scary and you don't like it, but it's necessary and you don't have to stay there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this to the Thessalonian church. He says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction of sin. I pray that verse almost every single week before I get up here. I pray that his word would not come just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full or deep conviction of sin. So are you willing to acknowledge that you're the one that's hiding? And are you willing to acknowledge that he's disobeyed? And again, these are, this is grace that God asks us these questions because notice um, the serpent, he doesn't get any questions. Serpent doesn't get any grace. Serpent doesn't get any love. He asks Adam a question. He asks Eve a question. He doesn't ask the snake any questions. He just speaks to the snake. So how thankful should we be that God doesn't just come and just speak to us and bring his judgment, but that he asks us these questions to pull us out. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now you're going to begin to see that, again, God's solution for death is that he asks us these questions, he, he convicts us, but that he also brings these merciful judgments. Merciful judgments. Guys, God's judgments are not bad. I know there's a lot of talk right now in some circles, okay? I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. Don't, don't hear something I'm not saying, okay? But there's a lot of talk right now um, as to whether or not God is judging our nation or whether we're coming into a time of judgment as a nation. Could very possibly be. Again, don't hear what I'm not, I'm not saying he is for sure, but wouldn't be surprising. But here's the thing I want us to get. Is that folks, if he does that, and if he really brings down the hammer on our nation, as his people, I'm telling you that even that judgment will be an act of mercy. 
Because even his judgments are always given to bring us to our knees. To bring us to call upon him, which is what we should have been doing a long time ago. But we, we need to have a grid for God's merciful judgments. This is part of his provision for the death that we've brought into his world. Okay? Um, <coughs> and you'll see this, again, as he's speaking to the serpent. I want you to notice here that um, in verse 15, the judgment on the serpent was simultaneously a promise to humanity. The judgment on the serpent was simultaneously a uh, promise to humanity, a promise to us. Verse 15, this is what theologians call, you know, big fancy theological word here, they call this the proto-evangelion, or the prototype, it's like the prototype, the first preaching of the gospel. Evangelion means gospel. Verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a reference to the seed that is eventually going to come from the woman as you follow this theme throughout the Bible, especially into like Galatians chapter 3. We'll see this later on in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, but then Paul makes this real clear in Galatians 3 and 4, is that the seed that he is speaking of is Christ. That Christ is going to come, and we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, um, or, or I don't know, a month or two ago now, whenever it's been when we were reading Revelation, and we said that Jesus came to step on the head of the serpent, to step on the head of the red dragon, if you remember when we were in Revelation chapter 12. And even here as he's bringing judgment on the snake, he's giving a promise to us that he himself is going to deal with our death. He's going to be the one that deals with all the wickedness that we've brought about. If you guys have ever seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, again, that was, I don't know, I forget, I forget what year that, that came out. And again, in any sort of movie about Jesus or whatever, there's always going to be some artistic license, and I totally acknowledge that this isn't part of the inspired text, but I love the very beginning, the opening scene of that movie, is Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the Bible says that he, he, he was praying so intensely that he began to sweat drops of blood, and... and um, Again, some artistic interpretation here that Satan is kind of over in the bushes and you know, he's trying to, to tempt Christ and get him to not go to the cross and he releases this snake, a uh, nasty little thing that begins to slither over towards him. And finally, Jesus prays again and he stands up and the snake is right there and he just goes, boom, and he stomps on his head. You remember that scene? Have you seen that? Remember when I saw that for the first time? So powerful. And God promises here that he's gonna be the one to ultimately deal, deal with the serpent. Notice also, though, another merciful judgment and provision here. Adam and Eve had covered themselves with fig leaves. But what they had provided uh, was never going to do the trick. It wasn't going to last. And neither are the ways that we try to cover our sin. Verse 21 it says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. He clothed them. The Bible says very clearly that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, God had promised Adam actually back in chapter 2, verse 18, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 17. He says, but the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, what did he say? He said, you shall surely die. Now again, there has been a death that's occurred. There's been a spiritual death that's occurred. There's been a relational death that's occurred. 
Like, well, okay, well, is the physical death going to occur? It will eventually, but not right now. Why? There was a death. Get this, folks. There was a death. There was a physical death that day in the garden. But it wasn't theirs. I want you to imagine, if you can, that you're Adam, and you have been given all this goodness and you'll remember back in chapter 2 where God brings all the animals before him and Adam is supposed to name every one of them, right? And again, I don't know. I'm bad with dog names. Our little dog we got for Christmas named is Forrest. We have a Forrest and Eleanor. Well, yeah. Forrest is a golden retriever. Eleanor, we have no idea what she is. Um, she's black and has real fluffy, weird hair. Anyway, Forrest, Eleanor, we, Hannah and I, when we first got married, we had a cat. I hated that cat. His name was Mr. Putters. Um, I don't know how we, I said, I'm not a great name guy. Anyway, but, but he names all these animals, and he knows them all. Now I want you to think for a second. But now, though, for the first time, God says, Adam, Eve, come on. Come on out. I see you under the blanket. Not for them. Come on out. They come near. Got their fig leaves on. He says, wait here. And he goes and he gets an animal. I don't know what it was. I tend to think it was probably a lamb, but I can't. It doesn't say that. So, But whatever it was. And he takes that animal because of their sin. It has to die. Imagine how Adam felt. And in an infinitely more profound way, folks, I'm just telling you, you you won't find freedom, you won't find a solution, you won't find a remedy for your sin until you're willing to come out of hiding, face God's presence, and then look at what he did for you through the death of his son. That Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, perfect, was killed for you and he was killed, and he was killed for me. And then lastly here, the merciful judgment that he provides. And I, want you, I just want you to see God's heart here. Okay, please see God's heart. Because I said earlier that the truth is this morning, the Bible says very clearly that if you do not believe in the Son, that you stand condemned already. And that it is appointed to man to die once and then there will be a judgment. And if you die apart from Christ, you will be eternally separated from him in all the ways that we've talked about this morning. But I want you to see God's heart. That it does not have to stay that way. Is that one of the things God does here in Verses 22 and 23, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And he, he puts a, 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 an angel, a cherubim, with a flaming sword twirling all around so that they cannot eat of the tree of life. You're like, why? What, why doesn't he? Because in God's mercy, he does not want them to live forever in a now fallen state. 
He does not want them to have to live forever with the effects of sin. And so he, in his mercy and his grace, he judges them, puts them out of the garden. But again, it's an act of mercy so that they will not take of that tree of life and have to live forever in the state that they are in. Folks, you do not have to live forever in the state that you are in, in your sin. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and he's enough if you'll just come to him this morning. And if you're a Christian here this morning, and you're hiding, you're hiding, you're not fooling anybody, and God knows. Worship team, you can come up. Gotta close. Um, Death is separation. But God has had a way for us to come near. And as we close this morning, I just ask you, are you hiding? Are you hiding from God's presence this morning? Have you sown fig leaves together? Have you tried to make your own provision? Have you thought that you can just fix it yourself? Are you afraid? Are you afraid? I'm telling you, because, what of, because of what God has done for us through Jesus, you don't have to be. A passage that I'm sure we all probably know, Romans chapter 8. Paul says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you experience the separation that death has brought into your life, sin has brought into your life, I'm telling you, the only place to run is to the love of God. Please do that this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for your merciful judgments in our individual lives and for us as a nation. Lord, I do just want to pray here as we close today for our nation, for our country. Um, God, we don't know exactly what's going on, but Lord, you do. And Father, I just want to declare that no matter what comes, um, you are good. You're good all the time. And I, don't, I just don't think everybody can say that if they don't know you. I, don't think, I know that they can't. But Lord, as your people those that you've redeemed and because, only because of your grace, Lord, that you've saved us. God, we, we just declare that you're good. And Father, I just want to say, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, whatever that looks like for our country, but Lord, also for us this morning as individuals, God, call us out. Call us out from hiding and call us into your love. We love you and we thank you for being good to us. Ask that we'd run to you now and trust you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.